25 years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Vampire the Requiem. Hey folks, DJ here. I just want to take some time to talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse Retaliations by Flyles Games. This soon-to-launch game is brought to you by the same team that's bringing you Vampire the Masquerade chapters. And they just released a trailer to go along with it. We at 25 invite you to check it out at werewolfthepocalypse-retaliation.com to catch a peek at the trailer and be updated of when it'll appear on Kickstarter, which seems to be early 2022. The game promises to have everything that made chapters endearing to us, the fans, including scenarios, investigations, beautiful miniatures, and more. With that, thanks for your time. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another 25 Years Vampire the Masquerade Presents Requiem Mythologies. That's right. Today we're going over Requiem Mythologies, and folks, what i got to tell you is... Let's strap in a little bit. We're only going to do this in uh, in parts here, so they're easily digestible kind of ways to follow along. A lot of people hear these reviews, and what they do is they get the book, compare them, and reread them, rehear them, and kind of get more familiar with what they do. And then eventually we might get questions in that regard. And uh, sometimes some people are delayed. We don't expect everybody to watch, what is it, like 300-plus podcasts we have out already uh, at one given time, especially because they're an hour apiece. It's going to take you time to get through that. But that's what the library is available, at least on, uh, online the way we have it, to where you can just look at what you're looking into and kind of go from there. In the interest of that, we want to take our time with mythologies. This is a thick, uh, well, it's a thick book, but it's more like content is more valid. Like, the, the content makes it feel vast. Wouldn't you agree, DJ? Oh, definitely. Like, the book is only about 148 pages, and by any standard, we'd be like, oh, 148 pages? No, it's... Uh... It's like reading Game of Thrones, right? You think to yourself, 300 pages? Yeah, I could do this. It's going to be as easy as... It's not. There's a lot of content in here to go and chew through. So, and to tell you what we did here, we were fascinated by the fact that when you look at the Mythologies book, it tells you off the bat what's in it, right? It's it's not the stories that kind tell about vampires, like you're thinking, but it's the stories the monsters tell uh, each other and themselves uh, about the, the myths themselves, right? And there's a lot of mythologies in here, but that's the general gist of the book as they, as they quoted in here, as I just did for them. Uh, but there's stuff in here about origin stories, different alternate methods to, uh, to say where the kindred actually come from, uh, or the vampire comes from, I should say. Hints of Golconda, myths about uh, kindred eating super vampires, and lots of other heavy folkloric material uh, that's here to provide awe, mystery, you name it, uh, to your game for Requiem itself. Uh, to make that uh, more immersive, I'd say. Uh, the simple fact is, is the vampire culture within mortals should have a lot of guesswork in it. And it's because, well, who knows what's going on with that, right? The idea here is that the uh, mythologies, and as they roll together, help build a culture that Kendrick can talk about, actually. They could discuss these things. Um, imagine when you were a kid, and I don't know if you did this, DJ, we certainly did where I was, and uh, in, in rural Arkansas, there wasn't a whole lot to do. And... Um, you know, as a kid, I mean, you didn't have the car to tear off anywhere. You're playing with your friends. There's only so many rocks you could skip in the creek. And if you're lucky, you got to go down to the lake. In particular, it's the summertime I'm referring to. And maybe do some fishing or whatever. But after you fished, all you could fish and you swam all you could swim. It's used some sticks in your imagination trying to figure out what to do next. And, and for us, as we got older and sticks and toys weren't enough, we began to do these like, you know, sit by the campfire and tell stories to one another. Uh, sort of things, right? Mm -hmm. Things you do when camping. And one of them was the the, the scare you, right? The, the typical campground scares that are there. And the oldest kid had the best stories because he got to listen to the adults and they tried to scare him and 
so on and so forth. This book actually reminds me of that. Like someone trying to come around and inject uh, some myths in, in, a, in a BS fashion for some of it, but adding that point, it could be real. And where we see this is the introduction story, actually, that intro story doesn't prepare you for what you read. Talks about a guy um, who's very much into the scene, uh, and by the scene I mean going out, having fun, um, you name it. And uh, what, they, what they're looking to do is that they're looking to, he's looking to party. You know, go to the bar, do what you're going to do. Um, I, I, I can't put any better. I don't need to bore people with what you do at a bar. Uh, but this guy goes out, has fun, and that's sort of his life, right? He's uh, very powerful in, in his own right. Um, I would say he's, uh, get the impression he's like a broker of a type, uh, works with accounts, you know, he has people that work for him at a firm and, and makes a decent chunk of change. And it opens up with him going to an art gallery, right? I describe his life at the club because we're going to, because it's relevant, but uh, basically it lays the backdrop for who this guy is. He gets this mirror, though, at an auction. And at this auction, and they waste no time getting to the auction, by the way, they talk about how fascinating he is with his reflection in the mirror and how he looks great in the mirror. And everybody thinks they look great in the mirror. But anybody who bids on it, he outbids them. Right? Showcasing that power I was talking about. Um, anytime uh, anybody wanted it for, for less than he was in a bid, um, he was happy with it. If they went for it, he'd almost double it, is what it felt like. Right? He just had to have it. But he's obsessed with it, is what they're saying. And then he ends up winning the auction, right? Now, when this book was written, $1,000 was the auction. And it uh, doesn't seem to be that high, but he felt it was compared to the other pieces that were offered here. And it's because it's just a mirror, right? Handmade, sure. You could tell by all the designs on the side, which looked like lovers embracing one another, uh, were hand-carved into it. And uh, that's, that's great. Brings it home. Puts this mirror on his wall and goes about his life. And uh, when he goes to work the next day, People are asking him if he's okay. Like, I'm certain you had this day, DJ. You go to work and mm -hmm. maybe you forgot to, you used a different hair gel or crap. You forgot to use that deodorant, but you did shower and you have the backup deodorant at work. At least I did stuff like that. And you used that one. And you're, you're certain it's great, but you're off your A game because you had to do that. And then all it took was one person to go, hey, you, you, you all right? You feeling okay? And you're like, crap, does it show? Right? You start walking around. Wondering what's what's about me that's asking, causing people to ask me if I'm okay. And he kind of goes through that, except he gets really annoyed by it and uh, makes it a point to go home. Puts on his $1,000 cream, as he puts it, and, and facial creams and, uh, you know, does manscaping, shaves accordingly, all that nine. Uh, gets prepped again, does the showering, comes out, feels great, gets a great night's sleep, wakes up, looks in the mirror and sees he looks amazing. Goes out again. This time people are concerned. And the person who catches it is where he goes to breakfast every morning. There's this busboy, as he refers to him, a waitstaff, really. And this is a guy who uh, walks up to him now and goes, hey, are you, are you all right? Like, really concerned, telling him, hey, you might want to go see a doctor or something. Are you okay? And he's like, what, what, is, what, is wrong? what does he see that I don't? I'm even wearing the shirt, as he says, is the one that always gets him late. Right, his whole wardrobe costs something near like 5k or something like that that he's wearing that day. There should be nobody asking him what's wrong. He's he's on point. Bottom line, as this goes along, he's the author does a great job of writing about this mystery smell in the house that starts developing. And he's taking a couple days off from work because he's apparently doesn't feel well. He's trying to get that back. And uh, he feels fine, but people think he doesn't, he doesn't understand. 
and he's sleeping later in the day and, you know, stuff's going on. And you kind of get where this is going, sort of. But I like the ultimate twist on it, right? And, I mean, we're going to talk about it only because it relates to this book. Clearly the mirror is affecting him and it's changing him, right? And it's changing him for what I would like to call the, well, better or worse is up to you. But the part that actually got me to jump, I've never read a story that then got me to jump in my mind because I felt so in tune with the character of it that I felt that it was just going to be, like I was thinking it was an otherworldly being. There was going to be something to tap in the mirror as he was reading, you know, staring too intently at one point. Or he would have felt that he got swapped with something in the mirror. My, my, my imagination was going wild. I wasn't prepared for someone to speak to him in the room. Did you, did you kind of guess that? Like off the bat, you figured that was going to happen? I, um, I didn't. And it's funny that you should mention that because I was reading a story. I was like, something's very familiar about this, this myth, right? And once again, that word pops up. But I was like, this, this sounds about right. And it's like a Twilight Zone episode, for lack of a better term. That's exactly how I ended up taking it because... You're right, right? Like he, you think you're you're on the up and up, but everyone else just doesn't see you that way, and you're like, "What the hell? Why would?" And then all of a sudden, yeah, you, you definitely hear that voice. Do you want to you want to let them know what happens next? Yeah, because I kind of feel it's relevant, and actually, it's okay. If usually we wouldn't ruin this, but we're gonna we're going to here because it kind of highlights what's in this book. Oh, I like to think that I some, agree. that some people would listen a little bit, and like ah, mythologies will yep. never skip it. So I mentioned the hand carvings on the side. He takes a takes the guy home with him, and it's that actual uh, waitstaff guy. I believe his name's Alec, if I remember right, um, from being in there. And uh, he knew he was into him and whatever, and he's wearing the right clothing, gets him to come home. And uh, he's been having these dreams that he's, like, immersed in blood or something's going on. Basically, the idea of him transitioning from being who he is to something more otherworldly. And uh, when he comes to, though, he's perfectly fine, you know, and, and doesn't understand. Well, then, <laughs> to the blue... Um, this voice appears and starts talking to him and, you know, basically asking him, how do you like my mirror? He's like, what is your mirror? And then he looks in the mirror with this guy and kind of starts because he doesn't have a reflection anymore. And the guy explains to say, hey, but don't worry, you keep doing what you're doing. You'll be fine. He goes, what do you mean what I'm doing? And he goes, you know, that smell that you that like weird rotting smell and this brown stains coming out of your walk-in closet. You haven't seen that guy a couple days at the, at the breakfast place you go to, right? And, uh, yeah, well, uh, you keep acting that way, you're going to move on up, and eventually you're going to be on top. He's like, what do you mean? And then he looks closer as the guy you know, tells him, look at the side, and he could see that uh, his lover that he was with, him and his lover are carved on the side of this mirror somehow. And a guy goes, well, what happens if I just decide to stop killing? I don't want to do this. What if I just quit? And he goes, well, did you notice the hands at the bottom of the mirror? And there are just hands grasping the bottom of the mirror like they're trying to get out from wherever they are. And this guy is just speechless, right? Like, I don't have a choice, and he's floored and, and doesn't know what's going on. And so, much like DJ said, it's like Twilight Zone. Something like Tales of the Dark Side, right? Something weird, something good, something creepy. But definitely, yep. you're pulling my leg. If I were Davis sitting around telling this story, and you were the venture DJ, at this point, you'd be like, get out of here. <laughs> like, this, this happened. Like, hey, I'm telling you, it's uh, there's there's a mirror running around embracing people, forcing them to keep killing people. They gotta feed, and if they stop, oh man, watch out for the mirror clan. It's I- it's so good because I would also put this into play. I was like, I remember why this story also looked very very familiar, right? And prior to reading mythologies, I actually read the Strix 
anthology, the Strix Chronicle anthologies, right? Uh-huh. And this this story was so good, they placed it in there. And that's why I was like, I remember reading it and exactly that. And this book, um, and I think this is such a great intro story because it gives, uh, as I was talking to you, Bob, a little bit earlier, I think just to kind of bring us into us and why this book is so chunky is because there are so many concepts that are that deviate from Masquerade at this point, right? We wouldn't normally hear about this in a masquerade story because we're too busy getting stuck in interclan politics or intersect politics. But the personal horror of like, what's scarier than being a vampire? If you're an apex predator, what could be worse than what you currently are? Takeaway mages, werewolves, whatever. And it's something like this that shows you just how much more horrible it could be, even to something like a vampire. And I thought that was a, the greatest twist of all. And I think the book points that out, right? When talking about uh, players. For instance, how they're going to use yes. it. Go ahead and read the book. Read the entire book. Memorize it. You should use this stuff in character. Throw it around, whatever character you have, and, and, and mention them as cool stories. You know, I wouldn't recommend bringing them all up at once, but, you know, space it out, right? Got to make it seem interesting. And mm-hmm. be careful. Because in your Requiem Chronicle, this, this helps the storyteller, right? The storyteller will go, well, if the players like it and it seems interesting, it just might be real. And lo and behold, if you're the only guy who knows about the Mirror Clan... What happens when they come for you? Right? Or what happens if it's that you are one of the children of, of a mirror clan, but there's a weird segue of, of, yeah, you were made, but you can't quite remember what you had, and the story you believe in how you were made isn't real. That's not what happens. It starts unraveling. Crafty storytellers will wiggle stuff in to make it more interesting for the right player looking for that difference. And that's, that's why they say to do it. And they encourage storytellers to do things similar to that, right? How to make it to more fearful... Um, in, in any capacity, is a way to add depth and longevity to your typical vampire chronicle. And vampires are scary, but they're not the most scary things that are out there. And more importantly, they don't have to fight the traditionals, like you said, mages and werewolves. Like we, could, we can get away from that. Even ghosts, right? Ghosts are rare that vampires have to deal with it, right? But they're, ironically, well, let me just say it, kind of played. Right, we're aware they exist. There's books that you could play. There's lines of games, and some people have characters with that. But in Requiem, they like ball that up and put it to the side and say, "There's other things you can do," and we're going to get to some of that. Now, the theme of this book, as they invented, was just mystery and truth. Right, it's the idea that you can you can go around and you can have multiple stories for people to dig up and find, a la Indiana Jones, if you prefer. You know, be your own Beckett. In a lot of ways. And um, there are, well, crypto coteries would be a great thing for this too. Uh, a theme to come out of it. Maybe that's a Carthian thing, right? Their, uh, what was it, their passion and then their mission that they could use to come up with and uh, see if that makes a difference in kindred society. If everyone in all covenants are dedicated to actually hunting down the truth, might be worth your while. And who knows? Maybe an elder can come and quiz you about this or... It's a piece that a mentor is looking for, and they ask you to come a part of it. There's a lot of it here that works out. And in a mystery and truth kind of theme, it's you might be the only one to discover something and know what something is versus the other side. You know what I mean? And uh, that's that's kind of the draw for me. It always has been. is a, a means to bring people into a world that they feel they know and have mastered, but there's still that much more to shock them or to interest them or to pull them in. And these examples in here can get people to expand further on their own imagination, which is exactly the point. Now, the mood of wonder and fear, as they put it, 
is that they talk about that this is another way that you can showcase the humanity of a vampire in a lot of ways. Like, we talk about morality uh, here and there a bit uh, here at 25, but in, in this instance, we're referring to the fact of the similarity. You know, things that can make a mortal tremble, it can be a theme method that you can get vampires to do the same thing. You know, things and stories that they could, um, anything that can mesmerize them, right? When you talk about a mirror embracing people, I certainly would be curious to find that and study it and see what's going on. And I don't have to be a special magic clan uh, to make that happen either, as we're just going to use a catch-all term to be to be silly. <laughs> you know, it, just, it doesn't need to be that, you know. I don't think uh, Circle of the Crone owns the corners of anything occult. Certainly don't. The Order of Cool would t- contest that. And absolutely, the uh, Linkia Sanctum would say it all should be burned anyway, except for that mirror, because I want to know what that's about. Right? If that mirror could test Longinus, burn it, or what I meant to say was keep it out of sight so I could see if it's real. You know, and test it out. It's it's a way to turn things on their head. Now, they do this in several chapters. We're going to explain a little bit as to why it goes further, right? Chapter one uh, is called Damnation. It presents a handful of origin stories for the curse and its kin. Literally alternate stories of where vampires come from. We're going to get to some of that today. Chapter two is modern legendary. They talk about living myths here. You know, stuff that, that Kindred uh, are able to, you know, you get a closer look from that view of Kindred that are urban myths maintained by the culture of the damned and essay scrutinizing uh, the supernatural aspects of the Requiem itself. Uh, in here, it's about uh, the Sleep of Reasons, an example that we will eventually get to that talks about Torbor in a different light. You know, understanding the fog is a, is a quote from it. Art in the Blood reveals a legend of vampire blood mystics uh, properties infused in the paintings, which makes makes it interesting. And this, there it is. And this book is a habit that if you like what you hear and read as you go over it, um, there, there are powers that are in here as well for you to see an example of what the authors had in mind uh, for such things. And in the final chapter, What Monsters Fear, looks at eight things that chill and terrify the damned. It's something, I mean, they got great titles. The Thing in the Mirror, which is different than the intro. Uh, my ghoul, my master, what happens if that role is flipped, right? Normally it's vampire master, ghoul, thrall. What if it was the other way around? And I'm willing to bet right mm-hmm. there, a lot of you have never thought of that. And uh, frenzy plague, already the idea of there being a plague that going around that puts people in perma frenzy, right, is what brings to mind, but hold that thought. It's something that they go over, and it's not quite that, but it is something that uh, you would fear if you were a vampire and you heard about it. If you were a prince or in a prince's court, or anyone in power, and learn that this is happening in a domain you wouldn't want. It's like COVID on crack, right? The vampire COVID version. <laughs> you know, who, who wants it to happen with rabies to boot, right? Cool things. And one of the most interesting things of the final chapter of they, what they fear is the dreadful night of the city. Whoa, that's, uh, that, that's something that's quite chilling. And uh, what it goes over is suppose that the darkness of sin and suffering of the cities, or the kindred hide, might be a force all of its own, like an evil, like where you're at is a living thing. And they give detail to that story as well. And I'm just doing that to wet your whistle to give an idea of what it might be. And then when we get there, you'll hear us again when we talk about it and go over it. Because we're going to spend a little time on this because we feel this has more than its, its fair share of worth in entertainment. And after all, it's what we're doing this for. Uh, so we'll start off with chapter one here, uh, The Blood of the Bull. And uh, DJ, if you could please start us off. So, 
the blood of the bull pretty much talks about what you would anticipate being um, Mithraic, your introduction to like Mithraic cults in general. And we've heard, we talked about this many times in V20 and V5, especially with many cults being there. And we know from that perspective that Mithras itself is, is uh, Methuselah walking around. However, here it depicts it in, it, it almost intros it in such a way that it's kind of like a story, right? Like you're watching a movie and all of a sudden the, the pan is starting to go up and you start seeing where the letterbox starts going. And it tells you about how this was just something so low. And even though they've seen remnants of Roman soldiers and its cultures all throughout history, and especially in the British Isles and such like that, it wasn't until about AD 71 where they kind of stumbled onto a crypt of sorts. And they found the museum where there were things that were leading back to the story regarding Mithras himself. Um, and then during that period in time, they start getting further into it, right? Uh, people start looking into what made him that much more special. Why do cults start building around him? Uh, which moves us into our next thing about like what actually brings us to the myths about Mithras. And I think what really stands out the most here, especially the way it brings it in, is there is a difference between those that were uh, Roman Mithraic folks versus those that were Persian. And how their view had changed and why that story starts to come into play is because you'll start seeing a lot of the Romans just kind of take a quick look at it and not put too much effort. But the Persians are the ones where we're really taking a look at here. This is the focus, the focus about how uh, Ahura Mazda had decided that, you know, there was a rock and we're going to go ahead and create the world now. And out of this rock comes Mithras. We'll crack it open like an egg, pull him right back over. And there are similarities to like you know, Titans and Prometheus, and of course, this being from, you know, their particular religious bent of doing so, it'll tell you that it was there to deal with the sun and uh, take over the sun place. Uh, what was interesting about it is, like, they hang out together, they, they have a drink together, both Mithras and the sun, to say the sun acquiesces to the point that Mithras is a superior being to it, uh, which is not something that's often heard. However, um, in order for this to actually happen, there has to be a sacrifice, and that sacrifice is the bull itself. Bob, you probably know about this a little bit more, especially with uh, the bull. Would you be able to tell us about the bull? Well, it's not about uh, not, not just about the bull and what it represents. It's the uh, the interesting point. I just want to go back and highlight that, right? Uh, when people are studying mm -hmm. the Roman Mithras, like you said, they find all these statues. But there was curiosities, right? A lot of times they're down in these caves or they're sealed behind doors or like they sealed it up and didn't want people to find it, it felt like. And time erodes all things and eventually archaeologists come in and ruin everything, all the secrets. And they wonder why that was done. And the only answer is, is that Rome had a habit of stomping over a territory and then converting everyone by accepting their religions. It was kind of what they did. Hey, you're Roman now, and uh, here's your pamphlet. Here's your, uh, here's your place to go stomp grapes or olives, whatever you want to do. Don't forget to join the Roman army. You know, yeah. Um, since you're not a slave, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, not yet. Um, you want to be productive so you can move up in society. Um, that being the case... Um, your god going to be down here on the left, right next to uh, the god of sugar and the god of sandals. Because to know Rome, Rome had a god for everything. And, and every, every single thing, right? Because of this process of many gods accepted. And uh, there wasn't really a one rule thing. Except we scholars and the scholars of the modern come across a Persian deity uh, that's called Mithra. And they definitely separate the two. And I need to make this clear. To sit flat out, the Roman Mithras seems to be a different figure than the Persian deity Mithra. The Persian deity of Mithra is a positive force representing Ahura Mazda on this plane of existence, right? Because the significance that he is, is that he eventually decides to go and he's convinced to go kill the bull. And the bull inside of it is all of creation. 
at this point, it's, I mean, it's the very reason why it's the sacred bull. You know, it walks up and starts cutting into it and, you know, all the, what was it, all the wheat and whatnot starts spilling out of it and light comes out of it and that, that comes to the world. And when that's done, uh, Mithras is, uh, or Mithraea becomes the vessel for Ahura Mazda, more or less in the real world. Real world. Well, what's interesting is that Araman, uh, the god of darkness, the evil god in Persian myth, is, is actually supposed to be the ruler of the physical realm. Right, all things physical, all the senses that you could do, sin and depravity and worse, that's what he governs. But here's his opposition kind of forcing his way in, but oddly created it as well. So it made it a very fascinating point because even they said that a lot of this conflicts. You'll find a lot of stories where people are trying to guess what could have been it because in the reverse end, the Romans, you, it's a cult. It's simply a cult of mystery. Right, there was higher mysteries to obtain and go through, and ranks in the system, and it was interesting how that went out. And they wonder what it could have been and whatnot. But this is quick to point out that here in the mythologies book, we just note that there can be differences, and then it could be one way or the other way. And you know, they they say that clearly. Now, other than the bull being awesome, and that the fact there could be kind of some loose ends with this, it asks a profound question. Why would Roman soldiers worship the god of their ancestral imperial enemy, Persia? Also, why would devotees of a solar god meet in dark caves or cellars where sunlight could never reach? Why were the Mithraea so small, with only enough room for 20 or 30 worshippers? It makes, it makes it a point to say there, there's a very dark reason they paint this picture well as to what's going on. Because one thing's undeniable. If the blood is the life and a Mithraic cult, the blood is the symbolism for all life springing from it, and Mithras is the blood letter, then you can easily see why Mithras might be referred to as a vampire god. It's not far off the mark, and I think that's exactly where the inference is coming from, because a lot of this also ends up being that even though things were kind of like built into a wall, and as we were mentioning 71 AD, uh, people are stumbling onto these things. It's not the only thing they really stumble onto because another thing that they do stumble onto is a statue, right? They find the lion-headed statue and trying to figure out what it has, but there's an inscription in this, and the inscription uh, was Deus Aramanus, which is the god Araman. And this is where it becomes clear as to why uh, this kind of happened. It's kind of like saying... Uh, well, I, I guess the best way of saying it is like when you mask one religion under another, you know, people that were kind of getting converted to Christianity at one point or another were still pro probably practicing their pagan ways, exactly. uh, but kind of keeping it right. And it just ends up being if Mithras is the name that we got to bounce to because it's going to keep us in the light, then that's cool. But we also know what Mithras also had to deal with. And I guess in this way, it's the same way that some folks are like, well, if God exists, so must the devil. And in that case, when we start tying the lines together, one can kind of exist outside of the other. All right. Well, this makes a lot more sense to them. And especially the folks that are starting to look into this, because we also come across an important figure um, who is a member of Lankia Sanctum, who kind of, well, this is one of the reasons why they also store stuff away, folks, because they can't sometimes handle the truth uh, by the name of Legate Ambrose Calumet. And Calumet had come across these tablets. Calumet had also come across finding out what it was that was written in these inscriptions regarding Araman and specifically what Araman's relationship uh, to Mithras was. Like Mithras, though he may have learned or though he might have had all the successes that he had, it doesn't speak really about how Armin had a hand in a lot of it, how to teach certain rites that helped Mithras get to where he was. And in the same process, same way like the slaying of the bull, all of this was orchestrated by Armin. So if Armin was sitting in the background to 
pose Mithras as that. It's almost like saying, for lack of a better term, yeah, sure, there's God, but people that are all about Jesus be looking at Jesus and not at the person who was helping put mm-hmm. Jesus where he was, right? And that's just like the basics. Of, I don't mean to clown on it, but it's just to say right. we could see where the figurehead comes out as the, the figure. And this is why Mithras ends up becoming the figurehead instead of Araman, though Araman seems to have the most weight because this is where you start looking at a possible creation myth for vampires. You start taking a look as to how this came into being and why they have their place in the world. Another thing that's interesting is that in here, they're quick to point out the actual descriptions. And in here, it's important to remember that Mithras is in a common picture um, that, that, that you see in places where it's, it's always him slaughtering a bull. Like, it's, it's, never, it's never really different. And if you look this up, you'll, you'll find that it's called the tar octony or taro octony or however you pronounce it. It's basically the bull slaying. And uh, it's a place of honor in, in all Mithraea, right? It's there to show it, right? Ahura Mazda, so the reconstructed story goes, ordered Mithras to sacrifice the great bull, sending a raven to earth and uh, carrying the message. Or, to look at it another way, sent inside of Mithras's cave. Reluctant to do so, Mithras eventually carried out his orders when he tracked the bull down and cut its throat. All plants and animals grew from its blood, right? That's the distinction. I said just cutting the bull did it, but obviously the blood that spilt is the important thing. But the cave split open, and Mithras emerged into the world from that cave. Like a transitioning, right? He rose to power, is what this is showing. And with this act, Mithras became the favorite of Ahura Mazda, replacing the sun. Interesting. That whole process, right? Like, it's all about him ascending, doing what he's told, more or less. But Mithras and the sun shared a ceremonial meal of wine representing the blood eternal, right, of the sacrifice bull, sealing their covenant and marking the sun's acceptance of Mithras' supremacy. Why this is important is because this actually describes several rituals that you're in a cult to go through. And so this, it becomes pretty clear to me that this is a cult of, of power obtainment. I really feel what they highlight is how somebody who wants to be in this cult wants power so badly and is so drawn to it that they're trying to ascend where they are, who they are and where they're at. And they do this by, by doing something that elicits a change. And very much this guy, this legate, takes, these, takes this stuff and finds it and studies it. And some, it, a cult comes from this. And there's no way a cult can't come from this. This story mm-hmm. is so prevalent that in media, the lion-headed airman that's depicted is actually a version taken uh, in The Exorcist. And they make it a lion-headed statue with wings that does have a serpent at the bottom curling up the legs of Pazuzu. They call it a statue of Pazuzu. Well, Pazuzu is, is an African deity, not a demon at all. And Pazuzu there is like, I believe it's a fertility god, like wards off locusts, if I'm correct, uh, somewhere in there. It's off the top of my brain. Uh, but I know where the statue comes from. The statue here is a restored image, to me, more terrifying. Because I, I even think in the extra series, they show a bit of a different statue that relates more to the Persian roots of where it comes from. And it, it is a lion-headed accordingly. But the key, no one knows. It's a weird cult figure. They have a full-on drawing in here that's beautifully done to show what they're referring to. And this is planting the seeds and arming you with tools of how to see this done. You know, kind of see this created in your own life. Now, that's just talking about the the compendium and the statue that you could have there and the Mithraeum, you know, a small 
uh, cave-like church, if you will, dedicated to a small elite few who want to join this Mithras cult or the blood of, or the bull god cult or whatever version you want to want to call that of that in your game. But what did the Roman Lancaea Sanctum think of it, DJ? Like this, uh, this whole idea of I mean, they do have that in there. But but how do you think they handled that, or how do you think they should have handled it? They should have stomped it out a lot sooner, much like the Lancaea Sanctum should have been stomped out a lot sooner, as we had spoken about before during the inception of their covenant. Uh, but this is what ends up happening. They laugh it off for the most part. They're like, it's impossible. It, it, and that's This is going to be a theme, folks, right? This is the first time you read it in this book, but this is going to be a theme throughout the book where people and like all horror stories, they're like, no, but there's a monster in my bed. There isn't a monster, right? So in this case, they're like, no, no, we're telling you we've we've seen that this is a possibility. There's enough things that support it, even on a because I stutter if only because as I keep thinking about it, this is what makes the book and what I think Requiem is awesome for. There is no definitive story, and there's so many ways because of how it's written, how it's presented, that this being presented as a cult, the symbolism, the blood being passed on, the ascendancy of Mithras beyond and taking supremacy over the sun. Um means something. And so there is a validity to it, but there are people who aren't going to listen to it. And in the early years of the Lincaea Sanctum being formed, it went under the radar because they just wrote off Calmet. They were like, yeah, go kick rocks. And then this is where you start seeing a cult actually begin. Is it possible? Very much so. It is It is a thing that needs to happen, right? Because the Lincaea Sanctum do try to sanction this book several times. They try to stop it mm-hmm. a couple times, and you can't keep a good cult down. As we learned in V5... <laughs> You don't stop Mithras. Mithras just uh, moved to a different continent, right? You may think you've dealt with his party people, but he just goes and uh, there's always more people looking for power. How does one eliminate that? And this book highlights it. Remember me clowning a bit when I said, I just can't understand why we can't let go of Mithras. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But this book, reading this chat, I was like, this makes perfect sense now. And I get it. And there's a level of genius here. It's we. It's mm-hmm. hard to explain why a cult of power like that was used and found in Rome that they actually gravitated towards because it, it fit a lot of them, did it not? And and seeing that pursue on, well, what do you think it's going to do when you get to kindred some or vampires, some of the most greedy, power-hungry people of a selfish nature ever? Especially when you consider this flips at a point and becomes a, a sort of road to corruption done best. Right, it's a follower of, of the Araman cult, basically, what it becomes to. We just told you how Hura Mazda, the god of good in Persian deity, basically says he's Mithras. Right, takes the place of the sun. It's a good guy, kind of going around. You know, that's Mithras's reward for doing a good job and kind of gives the sun the day off. But the day off in, like, the eternity sense. You should go do something mm-hmm. else, son. I got it. Don't worry. I'm the reason the sky is up and we're all good. But this takes a turn. And, and DJ, how does it do that? What, what happens? It gets to Kindred and becomes this airman cult, but how does that work out? It works out exactly as we think it does, because much like humans, where they start kind of mixing and kind of corrupting the word as it is, they tell you that, like, when you start thinking about what it is that Armin really was probably standing for, is because he is a god of darkness, it's there to test good. And because of it, this is one, and once again, this is a slap in the face of Linkea, because as you believe, you're supposed to be evil on earth. They are evil on earth to their own right. Um, and what they start doing is they start taking into consideration all the other gods that are also part of this particular pantheon, right? They start talking about, all right, well, if Mithras has a place, this is where he's going to be on one side. They even mention Nurgle, right? In terms of how he exists within certain aspects of things, being the god of heat, plague, and dead. And all of this bakes into 
uh, once again the symbolism of how Mithras had taken the sun's place and what their purpose is now that the sun is no longer there. Um, and then it will continue to build up in that particular fashion. I think, you know, this, and you know, one of the things I, I have to bring up and it's too glaring not to is this is this version of not only a cult, but in terms of a creation story and why it turns into a cult, right? Because you have to wholeheartedly believe this is where I came from. This is, uh, as a vampire, this is where I came from, or at least this is where I believe we had kind of grown. It's so much more palpable than Mithras himself as a Methuselah, oh. because you don't believe Mithras, right? Because you, and that and that's one of the weird parts about it. And I think this is what what makes it awesome is Mithras in B twenty, or at least in Masquerade, is this figurehead walking around that works in power, and you could see where a lot of it, though he quote unquote was Persian. A lot of the Roman aspects of Mithraism is embodied in the Masquerade version. However, in this version of Requiem, we see a lot more Persian influence, and it holds that much more weight. Almost as if like the Roman version was just the face, right? Because it's all about the initiation. I think specifically, there's a lot more uh, focusing on the fact of if Mithras became a vampire, right, through all these rituals, through Mazda having sent, or Aramin having also taught him how to get that bull slain so he could get that blood and, and spread it over, then you too could become something more. I wouldn't be surprised if there were members of the Order Dracul also probably involved in this as a, like a subcult going like, wait, I could be more? Yes, you could be more, and here's how we show you how. Aramin is the way. He, he did it to Mithras, and if he could show Mithras how to do it and he was the first vampire, it doesn't mean that you're also the last in line. It could also mean you're the first in another ritual to push yourself forward. And they talk about, too, that this, this cult, the reason why you have so much information and conflicting is because some do refer to him as a god. Some refer to him straight up as a vampire and in ways you can mm -hmm. follow. And in one example, you mentioned Nurgle, and uh, this is the Assyrian god of heat, as you said, plaguing the dead. And it, the, the resemble of the lion-headed icon found in certain Mithraea makes people want to say that, oh, yeah, interesting. If Mithras, you know, was an Assyrian, then it could explain why the Hittites ref referenced the Mitra as Lord of the Land, dated in 1400 BC, which is taken right out of the book. However, my brain was blown even further. If you're a Conan fan, Mitra's a god there, right? And it's it's Robert e. Howard throwback for for a moment, but I also thought it was good because it's a good god, right? It's one of the ones that opposed Set. That's directly in there, and any god of darkness really. That's that's what it does, which makes sense because if Aramis is a god of darkness, he has many. Obviously, many ways to wage that war of dark, and here's the Lord of Light Mitra to oppose that. Which, wait a second, this cult is pervasive, and it's everywhere, and it's transcending cultures, right, is what it's pointing out. You can't keep it down. Correct. And in this, it also mentions the fact that, the back, to bring it full circle back to the vampiric calf, that there are many icons of, of the Tar Octony where Mithras is shown accompanied by other animals, in addition to the raven, such as a wolf a snake, or a scorpion. And they think that each of these animals, splashed by the eternal blood of the cosmic bull, shared in its dark vampiric baptism. And it could represent other supernatural beings, such as werewolves. Right? That that's a potential explanation. Beautiful cult twist. Right? They're just literally sculpting this awesome and amazing plot device that you could have in a game to explain an origin. If you wanted to be real and literal, this ties everything together. If you were looking for that piece where you could have a successful crossover, this actually reminds me of that old, uh, I, I, it's not a trope, but um, I was told a long time ago that the movie Underworld spawned a lawsuit. And we and we didn't know why. And I was like, until I see it further, I'm not going to worry about it. But the name's Corvinus, right? The Corax is used and uh, the, the, the crow and whatnot is in there. 
um, the werewolf and the issues with that, with the hybrid and the combining of it. I, f- I think they actually refer to the hybrid in that show and series as actually an abomination even uh, more directly. And it's like, wow, there's a lot. I can't believe if that was a lawsuit, I don't know how they lost because it's so blatantly there. But what that movie did terrible, that whole thing did wrong, was the actual mixing potential of the of the werewolves and, well, I guess the Korax, if you wanted to, and, and whatnot further to go back to, to a different, uh, not Chronicles, but Old World, um, or World of Dark, should to say. This gets your brain thinking that there are connections and there is a basis of truth. Not so crazy to have that crossover, just requires a depth to create the actual religious implications as to why that could happen. And I'm not saying I'm going to run out immediately and run a game, but at some point I will combine the two when this is not a hot thing listened to, right? When people can't quote to be my own words uh, in knowing the secret, because this is also best served as a mystery, bringing it slow play together to kind of highlight where things go, because there are traits that are there mix and match there. And even better, in uh, in Chronicles of Darkness with, with Requiem, you do have the werewolves there. And they, they are possible to do chronicle crossovers with other supernatural creatures as well. And that's, that's a great thing. And this is, hmm, give it a shot. See how it fits. But I digress. That's just one cult piece of possibility. You know, whether that it could be Assyrian or whether it's the Hittites or it's the Romans or whoever brings this about. We do know this is steps to power. Beyond anything, this is yes. steps to power. In here, they talk about an excerpt. Uh, that was uh, from Kalman, right? He, uh, Legate Kalman, he throws it in here and he says, according to the Belgrade uh, inscription, therefore, we can understand Mithras as an adventurer. An adventurer seduced by Araman with a threat of serpents and the promise of the key to knowledge. Mithras learned of a rite, perhaps that described by Plutarch in uh, AD 70, involving the blood of a slain wolf thrown into a sunless place that would grant him inhuman power. The, de- the degree of lion, the added degree in the Mithraic mysteries, thus indicates the replacement of Mithras's will with that of Aramon, and by extension, the replacement of the initiate's will with that of Mithras. Interesting. So in that one part, it's talking about sacrifice leads to an awakening, and it's, it's even greater power. He's Araman tries to seduce him, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to do this right. It's going to shut Araman up. Kill a wolf, blood sacrifice, throw it overboard, I'm good. And it actually replaces him uh, with, well, he raises up and, is, and kind of gets a soul possession. Or maybe we could call it demigod status in another way. And that could be interpreted in a lot of ways. And that's a great throw-in uh, for a debate uh, for people either in the cult, if you run it that way, or excerpts for reminding people why there could be warring factions that don't want to admit that they're the same Mithraic cult. You know, one that says mm-hmm. he's pure and he's Mithras and he is the god of gods, right? He's the good guy doing his thing. And another one says, no, he's quite Araman. You you forget the right. But we can't say that in public. But, you know, and behind closed doors, they're pulling out daggers, meeting up to have that fight. This is endless for, for ways that you could use this to um, incentivize a plot moving forward uh, with, with decent depth. I also want to add... The V5 elements, DJ. Let's talk V5 for just a tad, because there's huge portions of Mithras in V5. Mm-hmm. Do you, I kind of feel that on purpose, they left that interpretation a little vague. You know, to be honest, um, 
prior to reminding myself about this book, I totally forgot, right, in terms of like how in-depth this particular cult went, if only because I remember reading it the first time around and I was like, okay, Mithras, whatever, right? And me being a punk kid, uh, just kind of glossed over it. Then, of course, getting back into V5, I was like, okay. But my mindset was always from the perspective of taking a look at it from Mithras the Methuselah. I could see portions of it now having reread this book where willpower is everything, right? Once again, we just spoke about the sacrifice of the wolf and how there are like small Easter eggs that show up in Cult of Blood Gods for this Mithraic cult. But it makes me wish that it was a lot more clear because then I could see the full potency of it, right? Like if you're if you don't know, then you don't know. I guess is the way. And I didn't know when I first read that book, right? And I was like, all right, I, I I guess if you're taking a look at it that way, it's all like I said, it was all Romanized to me of like cult of power, Mithras on top, power begets power. All right, boy, let's do it. But looking at it at this way, it's more insidious. And I, I prefer this, but I wish that if they melded a bit of this and gave a little bit more of why the the cult kind of does what it has to, it would have given it a little more oomph uh, in the V5 version. Or at least that's how I feel about it. Here's something to dig into it, too. This this comes down to where they uh, where they explain, you know, behind the sun is the section they call this, where they directly are kind of breaking down uh, the, the myth or Mithras itself, right? And they say the Mithras is basically the classic deal with the devil. That it appeals to, to modern vampires at all because the, well, the sun was beaten. You know, and can be beaten again by that distinction, right? Because Mithras beat the sun. We can do it too. Who knows? We'll just follow in his footsteps. Maybe we can. Sound familiar? I know of a whole entire sect of vampires that believe they can follow in the footsteps of a progenitor, right? And just just do what he did and kill all the antediluvians, right? Um, but that victory, though, would come from a lion-headed demon in this instance. If you're able to beat the sun, it's because you relied on Araman. Yes. Well, would you care? That's what they highlight, DJ. Would you care that you were able to beat your weakness and your nemesis, the sure thing that could kill you, the curse itself, if all it meant was you had to make a deal with the devil? I don't think I would. Yeah, I'm already that far deep. If I decided I was already going to go that far, then let's think about politicians, right? You're like, I want to get to the top. And then as every constituent starts coming, every lobbyist, and they pay and they help you get to power, do you ever look back? You can't. At all. And that's because, DG, we suffer from the sin of pride. Yep. Right? That's what it is. Pride is the sin of the devil. Or in this case, Araman. And it always will be. It's his providence. Or Pacino. And it's <laughs> Exactly. And there's, there's a reason, though, that that's there. Remember we talk about subjugation of religion? No one does it better than Christianity. The Christians are the kings and queens, the penultimate emperors of taking over religions and making it part of theirs or completely wiping it out. You know, and here it talks about in earlier times, Mithraeus has defined itself against its great rival, Christianity. That Mithras' male-only elitist cult of obedient slaughter appealed to soldiers and rich merchants eager for social advancement. And that was actual power is what we're talking about. Those who had the money and those who could buy the army or the army itself that had the strength to conquer. That's what it appealed to. But Christ's message of humble mercy spread through women and slaves who had no hope of such life. Interesting, right? And that's why there were rivals and went back and forth. But we know who won that war. No matter how badass you are as a warrior, and no matter how kick-ass you are, it doesn't even matter your gender. Someone's keeping your home safe that you're returning to. Some partner you have or some future you're looking for is back there taking care of whatever it is that you hold dear. 
And, and back there are the people who have to maintain your city and land. Otherwise, what are you warring for? What are you trying to protect? What's the point of you being out in war if you have nothing back there for you? Got to have yep. something to believe in and, uh, and support and help and defend. And because of that, naturally, Christ's message of humble mercy spreading through the survivors of said wars is going to be the most important. And you may say to yourself, wait a second, what about the rich merchants who hired people to go off and handle that? Well, the rich merchants certainly don't want anybody else raising their rank thinking they could join their private secret club. You want to know about that? I know, uh, who's that guy? Not Rush Limbaugh, the the crazy theorist that uh, ranks like nobody's... Alex Jones. Alex Jones. Alex Jones can tell you all about secret cults for the rich and powerful in the real world. And I think it's just as viable. You know, you can hear the, his, his versions of how they have that there. But if that humor doesn't strike you as good, it's just the fact of, look at the logic behind it. The only reason the rich stay rich and powerful is because we empower them to. We decide that we would love to have their life and be as rich as uh, Bezos. Certainly would. Where'd Bezos start, though? Working in a packaging company and had an idea. And the ID took off, and then everybody loves it, Amazon's great, and he's the richest guy in the world. Where well, that's great, and I have no problem with him making wealth or anybody making wealth in that capacity, think about it a second. Slinging packages makes him one of the richest guys in the world. Yet, there are people who are nurses and doctors saving lives that don't make that wealth. They save your existence. Billionaires try to do that, doesn't do the same. Why is that? And I'll tell you why. What that guy provided was an idea that was a convenience that appealed to the masses, to everybody. Everyone could use what his idea said, and we know why Amazon's a success. However, at its core, him being rich and powerful is because there exists a tier that says, if you can make enough money fast enough, that's the only way we'll allow you in our old money club. There's like a bracket you don't know about. If ever you want to figure out why these rich and powerful stay rich and powerful, just for fun, go look up taxes and don't freak out because you're doing it for fakeness and, and make up what you believe would be a rich salary. And then I want you to put in millions of dollars as your, uh, the gifts you're giving away to charity. And watch how much of a refund you get back and stare at the screen and don't blink. I did this researching recently for a player in a game and was stumped. By what I saw. I, in fact, I, I emailed a, a tax accountant uh, that I've used previously um, who just so happens found me on, uh, on social media. And I just asked him that question. He said, oh, yeah, duh. That's why the rich do that. Can you imagine that? Like if you just you, if you give away a lot, you get more back from the government at the end of the year. You just got to hit a certain bracket and then it starts making you money to do so. And it's because we're trying to tell them to spend that wealth to spread that wealth around. But now we got to tax them. Right, tax them bigger, so we guarantee that because not everyone feels that way, and that's that's the deal. Now, how it pertains to the cult, I went off a little deep in there though, but I want to sell home the fact that those rich folks at home have to squeeze everything they can out of everyone else. You wonder why that cult has survived. That's why it survived. It's the elite few who still have the real reins of power that aren't the soldiers going off to die in war. They're not the servants down there, and that's the point. And so you have this broadening, burdening cult. And, but the Christian method and, and that story of humbleness explodes everywhere. But it ends up being a placebo, right? We give that to the masses and we teach them a better way to live and a nicer way to live. And we say we all want this. So wouldn't it be calm? Keep more soldiers at home. Do unto others. Turn the cheek. Ten commandments. 
this all becomes a great way of making sure that the majority masses play ball. We play ball, we're okay, it's safe. But you can't play it safe and have power. Doesn't work that way, does it, DJ? No, it doesn't. And I think that's where, when you take a look at how they operate, it's exactly that. And it's almost like, um, it's this, uh, it's like a, almost like Calvinism, right? Power begets power. So, like, you know that you're doing good by your God because you're successful. So, you want to sign up with Mithraism, you want to be down with the crew. They also have their initiates and levels to the initiates, which also stand for symbolism. Once again, symbolism equals X, Y, and Z. You are the crow. The poppers steal things up until you start getting further and further, further down the line towards the end goal, which is Potter, if you ever make it that far. But that's it's it's two parts because this does two main things. One, it gives you a structure so that everyone knows how far up the ladder you are. And uh, two, it lets you know when you made it up the ladder and now you are part of that socially. It's not even a socially because to... to Put this apart differently than what they're like, oh, okay, power's power. Don't we normally see this in cities and such like that? Yes and no. And the biggest difference about this is this is within them and you are not part of us. Whereas if you're in the Invictus, it's all about keeping on airs and it's about maintaining stuff. And this is where they differentiate as well. Um, but for a cult, and especially as an origin story, it is it is potent. We've spent that much more time talking about it because it was presented so well uh, this time around uh, than we did when we originally ran across it in Masquerade. We're like, oh, okay, Mithras and Methuselah. But imagine this being your origin story. And the craziest part about it, and this was just the first story, right? The craziest part about it is you can't deny whether it's real or fake. You can't prove it nor disprove it. And that's the beauty of Requiem, right? Because the fog of eternity will always mess it up. And even if they don't believe it, and you do, and you have the power to back it up, not only through disciplines, a bloodline, and or the wealth that you've amassed, your story is reality. And now people have to question it. And now Lenkea Sanctum out there that know that this cult still exists out there are kicking themselves in the ass, wondering why they never stopped it in the first place. So they try to suppress knowledge. They can't. But... That's what makes it great is because you could actually insert this in the story, as, as Bob was saying. And imagine that person comes up to you and just starts talking about it and then displays what our true power is like and how you, too, could be part of the scheme. Ooh, so good. They talk about also that there's a there was like sort of a contest between the cult of Mithras and dealing with the Lankia Sanctum, right? And this, this starts because mm-hmm. the uh, Julian the Apostate, the last Mithraic emperor of Rome, was killed by a spear. And it was thrown by an unknown assailant. But who? Pious legend has it, was a Christian legionary in his own army. He was betrayed by a Christian soldier that was there to protect him, as it says. But if you go back, as they point out, Mithraism comes out of the same milieu as the legend of Longinus, who was, you know, the first century AD in the Eastern Roman Empire. They go on further that cults even emerged from the same city, Jerusalem, within a generation of each other. The appalling perils between Mithras, who spills the eternal blood of the lone created of Ahura Mazda for vampiric glory and the power of Araman, and Longinus, who reluctantly spills the saving blood of the Son of God, guarantee plenty of blasphemous horror, from which you can go back and forth for characters to jump from one to the other, basically showing easily who's right, who's wrong, which is what we were highlighting. Um, with that, uh, you know, Christians versus Mithraism, uh, where you're at. But, folks, you may be wondering, we told you said V5 didn't define it as much as it does here. Well, this is a take, right? And I, and I would rather have folks look at it that way. V5 leaves it a mystery cult. Yes. More to the Roman mystery cult that it talks about. Here in Requiem, it talks about it being a Persian 
Mithraea cult, and here's how. Not only does it talk about Aramon being a main focus, they actually have a song in here to Mithras that's in here. And uh, it's under Mithraic, uh, or Mithraic Mechanics. We won't go over the song, uh, but it's in here. I mean, that's, that's how detailed they go into it, right? They jump in the deep. And because of time, we are spending a lot of time going over this, explaining it, but we told you, this, these may be only a few pages, but there is chalk fills of, of talking points that you could just kind of trip and go over. But what we want to get into here is the mechanics a bit, because the mechanics also talk about the ranks. Now, DJ, you remember me talking about the fact that there was a bird, a raven, specifically, right? Correct. They highlight everything that's important to Mithras here in the cult. Talks about the Korax, the Nymphus, or otherwise known as the Bridegroom. Miles, who's also referred to, quote-unquote, the soldier. Leo, which is the lion. Perses, which is the Persian. Uh, Heliodromus, the courier of the sun. And Pater, which is father. Obviously, you got the Roman word and what better known as, as we'll simply say, right? Because Korax is raven. Mm-hmm. Now, those are the ranks in the cult, but they actually mean something in the cult as well. And you're thinking, duh, Bob. Well, no, because, I mean, in here, it's a status that you have but it also denotes some power to gain. Uh, and in here, DJ, um, what does the Korax uh, represent? What do they get? Uh, the Korax represents the ability to steal gold from pauper and also mutilates the faces of the dead. Uh, this is one that also another reasons why they also are masked to a certain degree in order to go ahead and start removing an identity from it. But this is also how you start integrating yourself into everyone, right? It's it's weird because I already start seeing pyramid scheme in my head. And you're like, this is how you start off low, buddy. And here's how you start going up. All right, it's time for you to now put effort into creating allies, haven, merit, like all those things that are kind of building up in the background are there because this is how you start growing in power. And here's how you buy in. Have we not shown you when you were under the Korax that you were able to gain all of this under our auspice? And let's be specific. This is referring how does one initiate into the cult. And I think this yes. is more of an eye-opener uh, than anything else because it's great to see this. A lot of people ask us, what would you do? Where would it be at, guys? What would you take? And we're like, you know what? It's your game. Do it. Because they left it as a mystery for a reason in the Roman sense. And they actually give you an idea if you read close enough. You know, Dawkins is really good at making sure him and his team kind of highlight a pathing point that you could go with. But again, it's up to you. Um, there it would have to be, because what do the mysteries represent? In here, in Requiem, in this book, Mythologies, they want to give you something to cut your teeth with. And what they say is, is welcome to the deep end. You want to join a cult dedicated to the god of darkness, Araman, the Persian god, no less? Well, you're going to have to do something for that. You don't just get to be in the cult. You got to prove your worth. Take it away, DJ. Oh, uh, get on to the next one, Nymphus. No, no. To join that Korax cult, what do I have to do in order for me to initiate? In order for you to initiate, you you really have to start putting in <clears throat> number one to even get there in the first place. You have to go through a specific type of task, right? Once again, you're going all the way straight through from Korax upwards. But even before then, it rewards you and your willpower and knowing where it comes in. What it really talks about, though, is Armin talking about your ability to be treacherous and going through with the program. You have to follow the program and submit yourself to it because in much in the same way that he got Mithras to break by saying, I could offer you power, are you willing to accept it? There, it's, it's, it almost reminds me of the Sabbat to a certain degree, right? And, and I agree with you. It, it, it is that. But to, to narrow it down a little bit, to focus a little bit, because that's a little tad ahead. Um, when it refers to Korax specifically, and like you said, of what they do, it also mentions that the postulant to Korax must destroy some crucial aspect of her target's life. 
Mm-hmm. Right, because the raven steals gold from paupers and mutilates the faces of the dead so that their families do not recognize them. And so in the cult sense, to initiate and be considered Korax, you have to take out family, friendship, status, money, whatever it is, some crucial aspect of the target you choose is life. And in game terms, they mention what that could be. And obviously most of it is, is his backgrounds, right? Or advantages, merits in Requiem, yes. allies and all that. Um, and you could choose that. And it could be a series of things they mention, or it could be something very direct that you want them to, uh, however you want to roll that out. But that's what they have to do. And that's just the beginning. You get to something like the Nymphus. And, you know, and in here, that's, the Nymphus is the bridegroom waiting to ravish his bride. You know, break her, basically break her to his will. Period. And in this, what they ask the postulant to do is uh, to, to be the Nymphus is they have to break the will of their target completely, shattering their inner strength. This is reducing their willpower to zero, making them completely almost enslaved. Not even almost. It is enslaved. It's it's a terrible process, right? Who would want to do this? And got to remember why you want to do this is because that person gets weakened and they may, they may require the generation role for what you have them do, but it's proving that they are yours. They're, they're your chattel as is the point when you hit that Nymphus level. Now the soldier relating to miles is uh, they, because the soldier represents looting, raping, burning and enslavement, all without thinking, all having an excuse, right? The excuse is it's war. And that's when we do those things. Um, however, the postulant, because that's the representation of it, is that the postulant therefore must destroy her target's moral self. Because the soldier is not about alone murder, it's about degenerating their sense of morality. Completely. I mean, that's gross. I can't even do that. Like, you're trying to ruin them to, to zero. To where they could do anything and are about anything, and this should take time. Right, you're whoever you target. Imagine somebody made a phone call to you that you bumped in, into the coffee house and just mentioned you were having a hard time with work, whatever. You get home, and this person goes, having a hard time with money? He's like, yeah, what would you do if you had it? Right, and it's a phone call, and he's like, yeah, why don't you come outside? Yeah, I just thought about it. We're going to do a fun experiment, something for fun. Okay, I'm curious, and you walk out, and they ask, hey, kid, where do you live? Where do you work? I mean, this is where you live? This really? Seriously, this apartment? Well, yeah. Uh, let's get you a house. What sort of house would you want? Want a house like mine? Let's go to my place. And you drive up to somewhere in the Hollywood Hills, this lavish castle that you couldn't possibly ever afford, right? This ridiculous super pad. Well, while you're there, this guy looks at you and says, do whatever you want. What? You want Coke? Tell me. That's in the fridge. You want yourself to have some caviar? We can get that too. A bit boring if you ask me. How about some turducken? You haven't tried that yet? How about we order you so much food you couldn't possibly eat it all just to watch you throw it at poor people as we drive around in your new Porsche? Sound good? Have your attention? Because wealth is the key here. And every time this person's doing this, the goal is to do even more. To do even more. Hey, have you ever wanted uh, DJ to be involved in an orgy of nothing but supermodels? I'm a, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm, a, I'm shocked if only because I can see how far this goes and how easy it is to not say no when given the opportunity. And that's my point. That's the point of this. An apostolate of the miles would, would be doing that. They'd be looking out for that to do that to someone they know needs it. That's the important part. They need to be able to pick someone who has a weakness, a need, just a need. And it could be anything. You don't want it to be money. You don't want to follow that. Honestly, it's easy street. What about that person that just wants to get a degree? That struggling mom who just wants to be able to 
uh, take care of her kids? Or how about a how about a young woman who doesn't want to uh, be held down by anything and wants to focus on her career and be very successful? You might show her things that she could do to move ahead, right? Things that she would never think to do. Like, you know, you've been at this job for how long? She goes, only a month. And you got a master's degree? I got a doctorate. Oh, that's badass. Does your boss have a doctorate? Well, I assume. Don't assume. Why don't you find out and come back tonight and let me know? You know, and they come back and all day are thinking about it. They go, you know what? They don't have a doctorate. They just, they just been in it a long time. It's weird. And then the guy says something slick. Like, I bet he's male, too. How'd you know it was a male? How they typically are. Hey, don't worry, though. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's nice. You're there for, what, 10, 20 years, he'll retire, then you'll be able to move up. And she chokes. What do you mean? I'm going to be in the same entry-level position for 20 years? Well, it's not exactly entry-level. You have a doctorate. So they hired you in. Naturally, they paid you top pay for that position, right? And of course not. And, you know, some people are just happy to have a high-paying job and they get out, but it's definitely not top pay. And she stutters and sputters. And he goes, look, I don't mean to tell you how to live your life. But what I would do is I would go in and sit down with my boss and point out what you've done with your doctorate and how the job you have where you're at, you're very grateful. But you want to talk about dollars and cents and see what he says to you. Now, what she doesn't know is that you've set it up already. You've already talked to this guy, her boss, this joker, and he's terrified. You've laid the groundwork. Whether you said vampires are real or a little dominant goes a long way, you set it up to where she's about to have the dream conversation if she could just master the will to go have that talk. And when she sits down to say, hey, I notice I'm only getting insert reasons why my doctorate should matter entry level over anyone else's because I was hired considering and I'm being shortchanged by about twenty dollars to $30,000 considering my worth and what I've been through and I got bills to pay for sure, like that doctorate money that I have to pay back to the university or the bank that I, you know, because I have to pay for school. You walk in, your boss is like, oh, wow, you're here. Oh, thank God. What, thank God. What, is he, what do you mean? Oh, please sit down. I'm very nervous. Uh, do you, you mentioned uh, your, your pay. You were curious, right? He says, yeah, I think we screwed up the contractual agreement and the obligation. Yeah, we're looking at what we're asking you to do, and there's just so, there's like a lot of better position that we could find you and do for you. We're going to move you up real quick. Is that okay? We move you up quick? How would you like an office? You get where this is going. It's a different type of corruption, but if you lay that groundwork, convince her that the world is just open. She has to see it your way. Eventually, she'll fall into it on her own, the aspect of power. Power corrupts on its own, and anyone understands it. And at that level of miles, and why I take that time, is to note just how long of a process that is meant to be, because it's meant to test your manipulative skills at reducing someone to zero morality. And naturally, you're a devil yourself. You didn't have morality in the first place to be in this cult. It goes on. It mentions the Leo as being the lion, and this is where this gets really culty, right? Because the lion slaughters indiscriminately and leaves uh, leaves his kill uneaten for jackals to have and devour. And at this level, this talks about the postulant has to go out and kill, literally slaughter, much like uh, relating to the innocent bull. But here you must kill using only natural weapons. And that's fine if you use your protein claws, but you got to kill more humans in one night than you have health levels, right? That's the game mechanic, you know, or blood potency dots, whichever is higher, as Requiem goes. But I want you to think about that. DG, what would you say would be the average health level dots someone has in Requiem? About five or, usually about five or so. Five or so. In one night, if I went in a wanton destructive killing spree with my protein claws and just butchered, let's say I don't have it actually, 
and I got to use just what I got. And I got to run around and punch people to death. Like five people in one night. As an ST, what do you, as a player, what would you feel your character would be at the end of that slaughter? Less than human. Broken to a certain degree. You could almost start seeing where you're like, why? And it's weird because you start thinking about those movies where the person just starts to buy in. Maybe after the second kill. The first one was nervous, right? But as you start getting to the third one, you already bought in. You're like... I just I just got to get it done. And that's where the villain has that maniacal laughter, right? Because hysteria just starts taking them over. And they're like, the first one hit them in the head with the hammer, but I can't use that. So got to start all over again. Choose the kid. Leave her behind. Smash, 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 smash. There's a little brother. Good. That makes the second and third one. You're not even thinking now in terms of like, you've left that morality behind. You just start thinking the number. You're like, I got to pump it out. You're like Matthew McConaughey and Wolf of Wall Street. You're like, what are those rookie numbers? No, you got to keep going. What are you doing daily? <laughs> Those rookie numbers. Got to get those numbers up. You called that murder? It was only three people. Come on. But what's also about it in terms of the mechanic, and I, why I think the mechanic is clever here is because it's just to show regardless of what position you are in life and the reason why you have that much more health levels is that gluttony. You are the lion. Like, we've seen lion fuck up monkey for less and just leave it there. <laughs> doesn't even eat it. Just kills the monkey, leaves it there just for, it was, just for being in its presence. And in that case, you're mimicking that statement, which is... I have this much, but I don't need it. And if I was just to kill one, it's too insignificant. You have to show that it doesn't mean anything to you to be able to go through this, like you know, this raging slaughterhouse of, of doom and destruction. It's what you got to do. It's what you got to do to be in the cult, right? The cult. Then you get to uh, Percy's, the position above that. And this one describes that the fleeing Persian turns in the saddle and fires an arrow into his foe or poisons his king's cup at court, or uses unhallowed witchery to work his dark will. Basically doing whatever you must. That's that's kind of the point after the achievement of Leo. Do what you gotta do. However, this position is important because the postulant to Perseus must treacherously kill another kindred by indirect means. I'll repeat that. You have to kill a kindred by indirect means. Now, you can't actually strike the fatal blow. That's straight up what that means. So you got to find some way, whether it's an accident or some weird kindred poison or some way that sets up a kindred to die by your machinations, right? To show that you are Percy's enough to do it. That's a, that's a brutal way to do it. Just saying. And uh, what I love about it is that this is setting you up, right? Because you're thinking, well, that might be the highest thing. After all that, we're sapping your morality, we're wanting slaughter, we have this. These are some like hallmark no-nos to somebody who's trying to retain that human posture, right? Um, sure, mm -hmm. but this is Araman, and Araman always has levels. My favorite penultimate one is the Heliodromus. That's right. Yep. Courier of the sun carries the fruits of the world into the pitiless gaze of Sol Invictus, preparing a feast for the burning. That's great. DJ... Why don't you read what we got to do to be that level? You must diablerize a more powerful vampire while that vampire dies to true death in full sunlight. I, I have seen a lot in vampire, all sorts of cruelty. <laughs> I've, I've thought I've plumbed the depths of some very nasty things. I've, I, as a prince, to, to highlight the inhumanity of a beautiful prince, forced another player who had violated the traditions to cut their sire to seemable death with a pair of fabric scissors and called it an Elysium. 
right? It was it was a salon appropriate to showcase the power of the elders, you know, blah, 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 Camarilla, We Strong 101. And I thought that was bad. To diablerize a more powerful vampire while they are burning. And you have to time it to where they're dying the true death. <laughs> right? That means they're screaming, they're out of their mind, they want to live, they're fighting to live, it doesn't matter, and your fanged self just grabs the straw and sticks it in their head like a high C juice box and just <laughs> done. Ah, wasn't that tasty? The terror alone. And this is the true meaning behind a meal shared with the sun, as depicted in their art when they relate to Mithras having that story, origin story, talking to the sun about a replacement of oneself. That isn't the top level. There is a top level above that, but it's asking to do things so heinous we won't repeat it on this podcast. They go deep. It's Pater is the level, the father, right? And as it says, the father rules the table of mysteries with a firm hand, killing and sparing implacably. And basically says the Chronicle's gotten that far, you will know what you have to do. Storyteller to Pasha, and we'll leave that there. I, uh, I'm stunned. Uh, but DJ, I said that to go through those for you to round us out uh, with the, the powers, if you're ready for that alone. That's right. We told you its status. We told you what the levels are. But you don't just do the levels and get nothing. No, no, that won't do. Um, I'll even be easy on you. How about we do the starting one? And then we do the top one, just to highlight the two. Sure. So to also put this into perspective, and once again, you have to earn your power. And uh, one of the things is, even though this is known as the knife of Mithras, right, this uh, this particular discipline, you could only earn as many levels as you are ranks within it. So they will only teach it to you there. So the first one is definitely the coin of betrayal, which mimics, of course, each one of these, for the most part, mimics an aspect of the... Um, the the posture of having to go through these levels these circles of sorts and the first one is definitely like it picks out a coin a sliver and it tells you like go ahead and start rolling this and what it does is it starts to sap people's uh willpower and this is one of the ways that you'd be able to do so without having to specifically work with certain disciplines but you could definitely combo it in there such as dominate um and it'll it'll do its work in terms of being able to break someone down and uh the last one which is the and this one grows very high, the shadow of the patriarch. Uh, the father makes the rules of all the house. And pretty much at this point, uh, <laughs> this power is so crazy that all it really just tells you is like between you and your storyteller, good luck, figure it out. Now, now we'll help you out. Here's some highly no uh, notables, right? The power down below that, for one blood, per dot of the cash's blood sport, uh, potency, you may exist in open sunlight without taking any damage. Yeah. I, the Companions of the Sun. Yeah, me too. Me too. I was shocked as well. I was like, what? For real? Oh, for real. Another one, Arrow of Thirst. How would you like to take a, you're fighting an opponent, and they're bleeding everywhere, and uh, you do a little rolly here or there, and the target bleeds out one of their highest disciplines. Well, what's that, Bob? Yeah, they, they just lose a discipline for a time. They bleed it out of their body. They're unable to keep it there. I, I was thrilled when I saw these powers. I felt they were unique and tied to the cult and hammered it home. It, it was something very, very well done. And I enjoy this actual take on a Mithraic power. I think, especially when you're taking a look at the Companion of the Sun, if you have the ability to walk in the sun because the discipline gives it to you, one of the banes of vampires does this not prove that Araman is right and that somehow it does exist out there. That's 
that's the freaky part, right? When it really ties in and gives you a reason of like, holy shit, they might be right. It's, it's already written here. There's, you could get this hard. This is a thing. That that uh, so good, so good. I really had a lot of fun reading this section. Me too. And folks, it's going to continue. We got through one section. We're still in chapter one. And uh, the next up is the Sons of the Serpent, which is really one of my favorite to talk about. It's hot buttons. That's right. We're going back to Eden to talk about these folks. But we're going to do that next week. Um, we're going to finish out the Mythologies book first before returning to Werewolf. And this is for continuity reasons. We think if you're listening right now and enjoyed this episode, you should get the next one and the next one and so on and so forth until we're done. They're not all going to be just one part, chapter, one part. We're not going to do the whole book like that. But we feel this warrants some effort in going through and highlighting it. Definitely. In particular, that Mithraical, because it's such a pivotal point. It was, a, it was there in V20. You know, look at the Dark Ages and what it did for it. Mithras exists. And at V5 in the update, you know, that's the, he's there. And this is this cult in a different take, in a different light. And in the Requiem verses, I like to sometimes refer to it. I think it's more important than all of them. That you know that yet it's another different take, but just as potent uh, to, to know what you're yes. dealing with. But, DJ, thank you, man, for coming with me on this. I know uh, I know, Bernchon uh, is kicking himself forward, but he'll be here for, the, for next week for the next one. And uh, stay tuned, folks. We'll, uh, we'll see you then. Take it easy, folks. Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM at our email info at 25 years VTM.com on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 25 years VTM or on our website, www.25yearsvtm.com. If you would like to support us, we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire, the masquerade.